Well, you know my old friend, uh, Charlie Haddon Spurgeon. He said this about the problem of selfishness. He said, selfishness is regarding one's own happiness supremely and seeking one's own good because it is his own. Selfishness is regarding one's own happiness supremely. It's a me-first lifestyle, a me-first worldview. You might also remember what my friend John Newton said about it. In a letter to a friend of another Christian, he said, Are we not too often chargeable with a sad, shameful selfishness and narrowness of spirit, far, very far different from that activity, enlargement, and generosity of the soul, which should the gospel produce in us, and which might be expected in us? He said, For myself, I must plead guilty. Or you might be, remember the philosopher, theologian, Toby Keith, also a country music star, who said, and I quote, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. He wants to talk about me. Okay, Toby. Selfishness runs deep, doesn't it? A self-focus where our needs, our concerns are primary in our decision-making is a function of sin in our hearts. And so when we think about the problem of selfishness, we have to come at it like my friend John Newton did with a sense of honesty where we say, you know what? We all struggle with this sad, shameful selfishness, a narrowness of spirit where it's just about us. And as Newton said, you know, it's that it's that moment when you realize, you know what? The gospel calls me to something different. The gospel should change my attitude. But many days I just want to talk about me. And so you might ask this morning, well, what about What about you? Where do you struggle with selfishness? Where will you justify self-centeredness in your life? Where will you mute the gospel where you say, I don't want to think about the gospel's implications in this relationship or in these circumstances. I just want to do what I want to do. Here in 2 Kings 20, we come to the end of, again, Hezekiah's reign and his life. And we're going to learn this morning a lot about the character of God as it gets put on display in some very powerful ways in this chapter. We're also going to learn a lot more about Hezekiah. And unfortunately, this morning, it's not all great news from Hezekiah. He still is generally a positive king who did good things and led the people of Judah in trusting God and faith. But as we're going to see, there's there's some issues in Hezekiah that need to be addressed. And the Lord will faithfully address them. Maybe today... The Lord wants to address selfishness in our lives. To just remind us, hey, hold on, everybody. Let's think about this for a minute because we all will will struggle with the me first attitude. So let's get into this passage and we'll talk about Hezekiah's sickness starting in verse 1 in chapter 20. And then we'll move through the rest of the chapter fairly quickly. But let's let's walk through here starting in 2 Kings 20 verse 1. Again, in those days, Hezekiah became terminally ill. We don't know what the sickness was. The prophet Isaiah, the same Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came and said to him, this is what the Lord says, set your house in order, for you are about to die, you will not recover. Now this is one of those moments when you get the diagnosis, and whether it comes from the doctor or the prophet, okay, in this case it's coming from the prophet, it's a very scary moment where we all anticipate the fear of knowing, wait a minute, hold on. I've just gotten that diagnosis that I am likely not going to recover from this illness. And so there's a sobriety, there's a weightiness to this moment where Hezekiah has to take stock, right, of his life and his reign. 
And actually the timing of this, really, it, it all is wrapped up right around the same time as that Assyrian siege we looked at last week where the Assyrians came to conquer Jerusalem. And so all, all this is happening, you know, relatively at the same time. So he's going, wow, I have the Assyrian threat and now I'm sick and I'm going to die. And the Lord says, get your stuff in order because the time is soon. Notice what Hezekiah does in, in verse 2, though. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Now, here's the deal. There's some ambiguity in this verse, and some English translations will take this as an act of sulking, where Hezekiah turns to the wall, and he's, he's upset, necessarily. Now, what he does when he turns to the wall is a good thing. He prays to the Lord. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of clarity on whether or not this was a turning in sulking and kind of having a, a pity party, the me first mindset. By the way, if you get a terminal diagnosis and you were living in the me first mindset, that's going to be a problem, isn't it? Right? So there's, there's a problem there, perhaps, or perhaps it's just he's mourning, uh, you know, this, this tough diagnosis. One way or another, he at least again goes to depend on the Lord. He turns to the Lord in prayer. Watch verse three. He prays to the Lord, which is the right thing, but as we'll notice, there may be some content of the prayer that, that doesn't quite work. Well, he says, please, Lord, please, Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and wholeheartedly and have done what pleases you. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He turns to the wall and he prays, God, remember all the good things I've done. And he had done very good things. He took care of the high places. That was notable that he did that and, and none of the other kings of Judah had done that. He led the nation in, uh, in turning to him in prayer during the time of this threat from the Assyrians. And so there was a positive there. I mean, he, he had, in general, he was a good king who had led the nation spiritually in the right direction. But in this moment of, of need, he goes to the Lord, which is the right thing to do. But maybe the basis of his prayer is just a little bit, you know, raises an eyebrow. Lord, heal me because I've done all these good things for you. Hopefully we know enough about the content of the scriptures where that's a little bit, it eh, doesn't feel quite right. It's the right thing to go to God in prayer, absolutely. But is this prayer, Lord, heal me because I've done all these things, the right, the right prayer? And you know what? Frankly, before we get a little too harsh on Hezekiah, we're all living like this, aren't we? Where we have moments of faith, where we trust the Lord, and then we have moments where the water's a little muddy and maybe it's not totally clear, are we trusting the Lord? And we're struggling with me first. We're struggling with self-centeredness. And so we can relate, I think, to Hezekiah turning on his bed and, and, and praying to the Lord. And yet that prayer being a cry of, of uh, fear and despair on the one hand, and yet also a, pri a cry of faith where he says, God, please help me, even if he does give a, a faulty basis for God to act on his behalf. Nonetheless, at the end of verse 3, Hezekiah wept bitterly. And we need to recognize that the trials that we'll face, not just the trial of, of a terminal diagnosis, but all kinds of different trials can drive us to turn to the wall, right? Where, where we might be in a financial tri trial, we might be in an emotional trial, we might be having problems with the family or problems at work or problems at school, and we might turn to the wall and just and weep because of what we're facing, because of the fear that's overwhelming us. And maybe we go to the Lord in prayer, which is the right thing to do. But maybe that prayer needs a little bit of refining. In verse 4, 
Isaiah, who had come and given Hezekiah the diagnosis, he has since left. So he walks out of the king's chambers and he's leaving, okay, the palace. And so he's into the courtyard and the king has turned and he has wept and prayed to the Lord right immediately after getting the diagnosis. And so in verse 4, it's kind of shocking. It says, Isaiah had not yet gone out of the inner courtyard when the word of the Lord came to him. This is how God worked with the prophets where he would, by his spirit, he would send a message to the prophet to give to the king or to give to the people. So Hezekiah is walking out of the courtyard. He's like, oh, oh, hold on. I got to get right back in here. The Lord has spoken in regard to Hezekiah's prayer. And although the prayer, as we see, is, is not quite there in its, in its content, it's not quite God-centered in its, in, its, in its basis for Hezekiah asking for healing, God mercifully responds to Hezekiah. And he responds favorably. Watch verse 5. He tells Isaiah, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what Yahweh, the Lord God of your ancestors, David says. Again, note the reference to David there. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. Look, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the Lord's temple. If you just pause in verse 5, God heard Hezekiah's prayer. And God doesn't always choose to give us what we ask for. God doesn't always choose to heal when we have a terminal diagnosis. God doesn't always choose to give us immediate relief from whatever the trial is we're facing. But what this teaches us about the character of God is this. Even with an imperfect prayer, when we seek to depend on the Lord, we are putting ourselves in the right position. The position of dependency on God. And this has a continuity with what happened last week, as we saw with Hezekiah. In, in the face of the, of the Assyrian threat, he goes and he, and he lays the letter out in the temple and he just begs God to act. And here, in a similar way, he's just begging God for help. And God says, yes, I will help. But notice the basis of his help. In verse 6, he says, I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you from the sickness and this city from the grasp of the king of Assyria. That's how we know this is all kind of going on at the same time. I will defend this city. And notice what he says. He does not say, I will defend it. You know what, Hezekiah? Because you did a good job. And you earned it. You earned it by taking down those high places. You earned it by, by leading the people away from idolatry. He doesn't say, that a boy, Hezekiah. I'll answer your prayer because you did a good job. That is not what he says. And I believe there is a correction here in God's answer to Hezekiah. He says, I will defend this city. Why? For my sake. To show my glory. And for the sake of my servant David. Because of the promises that God had made to David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so the Lord says, yes, Hezekiah, I'm inclined to give you mercy. Not because you've earned my mercy, but because I am a merciful God. And when I am merciful, it shows my glory. And that's such an important aspect of God's character that we saw not only last week, but here this week in a moment of personal inner struggle with Hezekiah dealing with this sickness. He cries out to God imperfectly and God says, Hezekiah, it's not about your performance, but I will heal you because that's the kind of God I am. I wonder this morning if maybe there's a, a corrective here for us in thinking about how we approach God. And we might be tempted when we approach God, to say, God, I've done this and that. I've made this sacrifice for you and that. And I've given this much and I've done that. And I've listened to how many Pastor Ryan sermons? It's like, you have no idea. So like all these things I've done, Lord, that I've, I've earned kind of credit with you. And now I'm going to cash in that credit. And God, please do this for me. That is not how our relationship with God works. If it ever did work like that, 
we would be, as theologians say, toast. (laughs) We would be. Because there's no amount of obedience that can warrant the grace of God. Instead, what God says here is, Hezekiah, I will will be merciful to you just because that's who I am. And it shows my my goodness when I'm merciful to you. And I'm going to protect the city. I'm I'm going to deliver the city. Not because of you, Hezekiah, but because of the promises that I made to David. And it shows my character because I'm faithful and I'm good. I'm going to do this so, so that everyone can see my goodness on display. And when we turn to the wall in hurt, again, I don't know what's going to drive you there, but something will. When we roll over in that bed and we turn to the wall because we're hurting, the right thing to do is to pray. It is to go to God, but not on the basis of our performance. But to go to God, why? Because God is inclined to mercy. And he is gracious. And he is good. And so if he says 15 more years, I'll give you, then we say, thank you, Lord. And if he says, I'm only going to give you 15 more days, we say, thank you, Lord. Because he is the one whose glory is on display in our lives. So now what happens is there's a response. And this is a prophetic sign act in verse 7. Uh, watch how uh, you know, Isaiah continues to interact with, with Hezekiah here. Then Isaiah said to the servants, bring a lump of pressed figs. This is basically the beginning of essential oils right here. This is what they did. They pressed these figs into an essential oil. I couldn't resist it. Sorry. Anyway, what's up with the figs? It's not medicinal. This is not a medicinal thing. So they brought it and applied it to his infected skin and he recovered. It sounds like medicine. It wasn't medicine. The figs, I don't know if you ever noticed, if you ever read through the prophets, there's a lot, of, a lot of prophetic jam about fig trees. About how in the land, when God restores the people, every man's going to sit under his own fig tree. Why? Who cares about having a fig tree? There's not like a ton of fig trees in New Jersey, so I'm just going to clarify this for us all, right? But the fact is, the fig tree produces figs, which are a fruit that are pleasant to eat. They were kind of like, uh, you know... Um, Uh, a a tasty treat in that sense, and it's a sign of prosperity. It's a sign of goodness and blessing from God. So for everybody to be sitting under their fig tree having plenty of figs, that's a reminder of God's grace. And so here, the fig jam with him putting these pressed figs on his skin, it's just a way to say, God is the one driving the bus here on blessing you, Hezekiah. And that's a prophetic sign act. Again, not medicinal, but a prophetic sign act to say, this is a sign that God will bless you with these 15 years. Watch verse 8. Hezekiah then had asked Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the Lord's temple on the third day? I I really wish this narrative stopped at verse 7. Because God said he would answer Hezekiah's prayer. He would give him 15 more years. We had the prophetic sign act with the figs and all that. But then Hezekiah says to Isaiah, yeah, but what's the guarantee that God will do what he said. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, in the law, the the Lord cautions his people, do not test the Lord, as they had in the wilderness. In Judges, Gideon tests the Lord. It's a Canaanite practice. It's not a positive, it's a negative. You remember Gideon with the the dew and the fleece and all this? It was was a Canaanite practice to try to guarantee that God was going to do what he wanted God to do. It basically is a result of not taking God at his word. And so here, I interpret the asking for a sign here negatively. Hezekiah says, well, what's the, or Hezekiah says to Isaiah, what's the sign? That I'm going to really go up to, that I am going to get better. Verse 9, Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord 
that he will do what he has promised. Should the shadow go ahead 10 steps or go back 10 steps? What? <laughs> what is going on? You need to know this. They found one in Egypt. There uh, was an ancient or Eastern version of a sundial that would be built into the wall of a palace or a building. And it had these literally like steps that came out of the wall. And again, think sundial. And so as the sun hit these particular chunks of, uh, of stone, it would cast the shadow in a certain way. And that's just the way they would keep track of the time. It's not brain surgery. And again, we have archaeological finds that have attested to this. And so there was apparently one of these in, uh, in the palace, in, in Hezekiah's palace. And so um, he says, uh, Isaiah says, or uh, Isaiah says, this is the sign which way do you want the, the sun to go? Which way do you want the shadow to go? Do you want it to go backwards or forwards? Basically, God's going to do a supernatural act here and cause uh, the sun to back up a little bit or run forward a little bit. And uh, 10 steps on the dial, one way or the other. Verse 10, then Hezekiah answered, it's easy for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. No, let the shadow go back 10 steps. So in Hezekiah's mind, you know, he's like, have it go back. It's harder to go, you know, back in time than for it to go forward. Sure enough, Verse 11, so the prophet Isaiah called out to the Lord. And once again, in a moment where God could have come down in judgment, instead, he brought the shadow back 10 steps, the 10 steps that had descended on the stairway of Ahaz, or the, the steps of Ahaz. Apparently, Ahaz had had this sundial installed. One, one way or another, Hezekiah doesn't believe the word of God from Isaiah, so he asks for a miraculous sign to confirm it. And God, again, could have said no, but he said Okay, I'll give you the sign. And I don't think this is an endorsement of asking for signs. Really, the way the whole narrative reads, I, I would say that what we need to get out of this is a simple idea. We need to let the word of God be enough for us. We need to let the word of God be enough. Turning to God in sickness or in times of trial, right, in emotional struggle and financial difficulties, all those examples we just talked about, right, turning to God in those moments is the right thing to do. But let the Word of God determine how we approach Him, right? Let the Word of God influence how we process our circumstances. Again, we're going to struggle with the me first idea. And so we have to say, wait a minute, I'm not the only one in this universe, and I am not the center of this universe. And so I need to process what I'm going through, even the most significant trials of my life up to and including the circumstances surrounding my death. I need to interpret those in light of what God has said is true. That is a spiritual battle because we're going to want to believe what other people tell us that is not in line with what God says. We're going to be tempted to think like the culture does. And you're going to be tempted to think, yeah, I know God said whatever, but so-and-so says this, or so-and-so has done that, or this is what everybody else is doing, right? And there's all this, this pressure to think differently. And so I think, there's, I think there's a pretty simple concept on display here. It's just let God's word be enough. And when we think about sickness and death, just a few notes here on this, especially given the circumstances that we face as a culture in light of coronavirus and all that, we're, we're more aware of sickness and death than we usually are. Here's the deal. There's no doubt, and it's, it's an assumption in the narrative. God is sovereign over the time and manner of our deaths. Okay, I'm going to say it again. God is sovereign over the time when we die, and the manner of our death, how we die. And so 
while medicine is a blessing, and I don't care where you are on the spectrum, if you're like, I only do like natural, healthy, this kind of stuff and all that. And if I only do what the doctor tells me to do and I, and whatever, I don't care anything about all that. But whatever medicines we take that are helpful to us, praise, not pressed figs, okay, not that one. But whatever medicines we take, whatever health care we receive in as much as it's successful, praise God, right? That's, that's helpful. That's good. But that health care, that medicine, that doctor is not our God, right? It does not have the power to determine when you die. It may be one of the things that God uses to extend your life, for sure, and we can be thankful for that. But let's not confuse health care or medicine in any of its varieties, right? Let's not confuse that with the God who blesses it and makes it effective. The fact is, God is sovereign over the time and manner of our death, And therefore, we don't have to be afraid of it, right? You don't have to fear it. And in especially American culture, we have kind of two approaches to mortality. One is we don't really want to think about it unless it's like been fictionalized on, you know, in entertainment. But really, we don't want to think about the reality of what death actually looks like and what's involved with with people dying. And so we, we kind of We've outsourced it, right? We, we send people away. We don't want them to be, you know, often we don't want a front row seat to that because it's hard and it's uncomfortable. And at the same time, we will spend enormous amounts of money trying to extend our lives, right? And to be comfortable and live longer. Can I just encourage you, though? God has ordained the number of your days, and he did it before he created the earth. And so he's given you the days that he's given you. And let his word... Let his word be enough. And just hear from him what he's called you to, right, from his word, and go and live and and walk by faith. And don't obsess over the time and manner of your death. Don't let that become you trying to control me first. I'm going to control the circumstances of my death. I just, by way of a biblical example here, the tragedy of King Saul in 1 Samuel is kind of a a test case in this, where Saul was so angry at God's sovereignty over his life. He had so much bitterness over God choosing David rather than him to be king. And he was so angry with God. And God actually prophesied through Samuel, coming his spirit coming back from the dead, all this whole crazy stuff about the circumstances of Saul's death. And he said, you know what? I'm so mad at God, I'm going to take my own life. And that, that, that anger, that, that me first thinking, I don't want God to be on the throne. I'm, I determine my days. I'm the captain of my fate, right? I'm the one that's going to decide it. And that kind of lifestyle, first of all, it's not a peaceful lifestyle. And it's certainly not a worldview that's driven by faith. Faith in God. It's faith in self. When, when we ask God for miraculous signs because we doubt his word, it's not a good thing. Now, you might also just ask the question, because this, this is not just about sickness. Again, there are other circumstances we might face that cause us to, to freak out and to, to panic and to have this fear. And so we might ask, well, what are other circumstances in which I doubt the word of God or I doubt God's goodness? Because honestly, for many of us, it's a different struggle. Some things that, that are a struggle for me won't be a struggle for you and vice versa. So you can ask, okay, Lord, what are the times when I'm most tempted to doubt what you have said? And by the way, God has said a lot. <laughs> I mean, here's the deal. In his word, he has gifted us. He's gifted us not just information about who he is, but he has gifted us a guide 
When the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our lives, we are actually given this this means of navigating the difficult circumstances that we face. Even this morning as we were singing, praying Psalm 62 together, right? There's a a divinely inspired guide to help us just kind of think through, oh wow, how can I trust in God? What are the things I'm tempted to trust in instead of God? And, And a prayerful response to that, putting God first. Let God's Word be enough. Let God guide you through His Word in the circumstances that you're going to face. Because he has spoken. Some of us are like, you know, I really wish God would send me Isaiah. You know, just send me the prophet to just say, this is what God says to you. Frankly, have you ever met Isaiah? No, you don't want that, number one. Okay, this guy, he brings the thunder, all right? But, but what has God done? He has given us in his word exactly what we need. Maybe you doubt that God will provide your needs, a, a physical need, money, a job, house, whatever, clothes. You remember what God has said to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30? When the Lord Jesus tells us about how God provides for the flowers of the field and the grass, and Jesus says, if that's how God clothes the grass, won't he do so much more for you, you of little faith? He takes care of the flowers. He takes care of the grass. He loves you more. He'll take care of you. Let God's word be enough if you're worried about provision. Or maybe you're facing a trial. And you just think, ah, I don't know. You might remember what God has said in Romans 8, 28, well known for a reason. Because God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the circumstance that you're facing, whatever it is, it's included in the all things, right? So let God's word be enough when you face that trial. When you're you're tempted to doubt that God will use this for good, this sickness, this market crash, this job loss, this trouble at school with my friends, this deal with the professor, this whatever it is, right? He works all things together for good. Let God's word be enough. Or maybe you're doubting with regard to your salvation, that you are actually forgiven And of course, we're talking now to people who have put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. But if that's you and you're struggling, hear the word of God in 1 Peter 1, verse 5. You are presently being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's God's power that guards the process of sanctification in your life. It's God's power that will see your salvation through to the end, to glorification. You are safe, not because you can do it, but because of what he said. And so if you're in a state of spiritual depression, let God's word be enough for you. Now, we have this temptation that Hezekiah's attitude hasn't been totally right. But again, we acknowledge that that's often where we live. Right? Looking to the Lord in faith, but also sometimes the water is a little muddy. Unfortunately, this last scene in his reign, and here in the record in Second Kings, it actually confirms that Hezekiah was struggling with the me-first mindset. Watch verse 12. Really, God was so gracious. He gave him 15 more years and all that. It, it, it all should connect to a stronger faith, but it didn't. At that time, this is right at the time of his sickness when he was healed, right? He was in the middle of all that. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah since he had heard that he had been sick. Hezekiah listened to the letters. 
and showed the envoys his whole treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the precious oil, and his armory and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his palace and in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Okay, so let's just pause right here. Who is Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan? He was the prince of Babylon. Let me, let's show him Danny the map. Let's see if we can get, the, get everybody caught up here. So this is during, uh, roughly speaking, this is the Assyrian Empire during the time of Hezekiah. But you can see Babylon's down here. Now, Babylon is not the big player yet. In about 150 years, they will be the big player. But at this time, they weren't. They're kind of like trying to get to become a big player. And so, um, and so it was a rebuilding year for the Babylonians. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so here, here they are. So, but they're always looking for allies to displace the Assyrians at this time. And so they heard Hezekiah was sick. And so uh, the Baladan sends his son Merodach and he says, hey, listen, go over to Jerusalem. Take, you know, take some NyQuil and some whatever, and Gatorade and stuff to, you know, to Hezekiah and give him gifts because we need an ally. And so you just got to know this, but this is the political reality of the time. So, you know, the Babylonians are seeking an ally. At the same time, the Assyrians are obviously putting pressure on Judah. And so all this is happening right at the same time. And so Hezekiah is looking for help in some kind of form. And while we know already the rest of the story, how he ultimately ends up trusting in the Lord, there certainly was a day in which he was tempted to just rely on maybe Babylon will be the rescuer. And so he looked to Babylon. So when the Babylonians show up, what does he do? He shows them everything, which he shouldn't have done. You know, foreign, foreign dignitaries don't get access to all the state secrets. There's a limit, but he shows them everything. He shows them all the money in the temple treasury and all the money in the royal treasury and all the different ways they had all this, this you know, the gold and, and, the, and the, the utensils of the temple and all this. He shows them everything. And why? Why? Because he thought they would rescue him. And so he thought, hey, this is it. And so he, he, he actually does what is wrong. And we know it's wrong because of what happens next in verse 14. Watch verse 14. Then the prophet Isaiah, once again, Isaiah comes, right? The prophet Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and asked him, where did these men come from and what did they say to you? Okay, pause right there. If a prophet ever comes to you asking questions, you know you're busted. Okay, so you just, you might as well just come clean. Okay, so Isaiah's like, what's going on? Who are these Yehus? Where they come from? He knew, but nonetheless, he wants Hezekiah to say it. Hezekiah replied, they came from a distant country. You may not have heard of it, Isaiah, from Babylon, right? Isaiah asked, what have they seen in your palace? Hezekiah answered, you can't lie to the prophet. They have seen everything in my palace. There isn't anything in my treasuries that I didn't show them. Verse 16, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away. They will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Okay, so if you just pause there, um, the judgment from God against Hezekiah's lack of faith, right? His reliance on his own resources in, in the form of dependence on Babylon here is once again this, this promise of exile, that God will remove Judah from the land. We know the northern kingdom's out. We know the southern kingdom is going to be out. It's just a matter of time, and this confirms that. This wasn't the only reason the southern kingdom was taken into exile. We're going to finish this story through the rest of Second Kings, but it was one of the reasons 
was the fact that they refused to trust in God. And so they're going to be, all the, the treasure is going to be taken by Babylon. The people are going to be taken by Babylon. Uh, it, the whole thing is going to go down. What's really sad, though, is verse 19 and how Hezekiah responds. Watch verse 19. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, meaning like right. Okay. But watch. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Hezekiah hears the prophecy from Isaiah, the judgment of his sin. And he finds out that the judgment for his sin is going to be deferred to a later generation. And instead of mourning the domino effect of his sin, instead of recognizing he was failing in this moment to lead his people and trust in the Lord and to pass that baton on to the next generation, he actually articulates in his heart, and here this is the Spirit of God giving this information of his inner thoughts, but he actually thought, eh, I'm going to be gone by then, not my problem. If you want to know what the me first attitude looks like in your heart, it's that. Not my problem. That's not my problem. You're not my problem. They're not my problem. This isn't my problem. Somebody else can get their hands dirty trying to fix this. I've got other things going on. And Hezekiah says, you know, as long as I'm going to be okay, I don't really care about them. And it's just shocking. And that's the last word we get on Hezekiah. Verse 20, the rest of the events of Hezekiah's reign, along with all his might, how he made the pool and the tunnel. Some of us have been in that tunnel and brought the water into the city. Those, all of those are written in the historical record of Judah's kings. Hezekiah rested with his ancestors and his son Manasseh became king in his place. You want to know something? Self-centeredness, the me-first mindset, leads to self-destruction. And I wish Hezekiah's story ended on a positive note, but it doesn't. It ends with a caution against self-centeredness. His lack of faith with regard to Babylon was a sign of, again, continued focus in his heart on himself rather than trusting the Lord. And so when we're selfish, we will actually reap these negative results in our lives. It's not, it's not brain surgery. Like when we're selfish, it causes us to bulldoze people sometimes. And we'll just run over people. And we don't care how it hurts them. That's not my problem. I'm going to get what I want out of the situation. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe in selfishness, we'll run from other people and isolate and hide. And then we rob them of ministry from our presence. Or we, we help ourselves by not having to deal with their issues. We just hide from them, isolating from people. But either way, it is, in fact, cold-hearted, this self-centeredness. Because it says, eh, not my problem. And listen, we would never probably say that to someone. Maybe some of us would in certain circumstances. But you'd never go up to somebody and say, I don't really care about you right now. You're not my problem. I'm just worried about me. Right? But often, that's exactly how we live. And God has put on display his merciful faithfulness, right? His graciousness, his willingness to intervene in time and in space to be at work. And as he does so, a, a faith response to God means that we now will adopt his ethic. We will become like him, is the idea. Not to earn his favor, but because we've already received his favor. But man, even those who claim faith in Jesus so many days, we are just cold-hearted, self-centered people, aren't we? We might be, we might be cold-hearted towards future generations like Hezekiah. Where we just don't even care about what's coming after us. Not our problem. And I'm thinking primarily here of spiritual investment in the future. 
where God has blessed us, in our church especially, blessed us with so many little ones. So many little ones. And yet we have this calling together, not just as families, but together as a church family, to invest in the future generations. But you know what? It might, it might take a little time out of your schedule to invest in the future generation. So you know what? They're not your kids, right? So not your problem. Isn't that sometimes how we think? I don't have time for them. I got enough my own stuff going on. Maybe it's not future generations. Maybe it's people outside your tribe. It's like, you got all the time in the world for the people that are in your tribe, but when it's outside of your tribe, no, just not. Or maybe it's people that you don't respect. If I respect you, then I will sacrifice for you. But if I don't respect you, you have not earned my love. (laughs) You have not earned my care. You got to earn the right for me to care for you. (laughs) What if God treated us like that? I tell you what, Hezekiah would be dead. Not with 15 extra years. Maybe we're cold-hearted towards those who have wounded us or wronged us. They've come at us. And the law of the jungle is, if you do it to me, then I get to do it back to you. And I certainly am not going to care for you. Or maybe it's just people that just annoy us or we just don't like. It's like, forget it. You're, you're involved with this group or that movement or that side of whatever issue. And so, you know what? I'm annoyed at you, so I don't have to love you. And that's a lot of things, but it's not godly. And there's a caution here with Hezekiah. The shocking cold-heartedness. I'll be comfortable. I'll be taken care of. They can fix that. Not my problem. We all have this sickness. And so what do we do about it? Well, I'll tell you what we don't do is we don't, we don't look to Hezekiah to be the ultimate solution because he failed. But we keep reading And there is another son of David who comes. The greater son of David. Jesus the Messiah. And what do we see in Jesus? We see in Jesus the greater son of David. The king who reigns and rescues. How? Through selfless sacrifice. He's the opposite of the me first mindset. Jesus is. He not only rescues through selfless sacrifice. Of course we would be quick to think of that. Yes, Jesus sacrificed of himself by going to the cross so that we could be forgiven. And while we were still sinners, Paul tells us Christ died for us. So he gives of himself when we hadn't warranted or earned that love. He gives so that we can be forgiven. So yes, he rescues through that selfless sacrifice, but he also reigns through that selfless sacrifice. And what I mean by that is Jesus, in the way he conducts himself as king of the universe— who rightly has the central place, he's gracious with us. He's gentle with us. He's merciful with us. He's merciful with me. Because I've had a lot of these Hezekiah moments where I turned to the wall and maybe I prayed, but it just wasn't quite right. And I know I've had those moments where I've been cold-hearted in how I responded to someone. And the fact is, Jesus reigns and rescues through selfless sacrifice. And just before we get into the details here, I need to say it, but maybe you've never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Here's the deal. The the trusting in Jesus, it's not just because he is glorious and powerful, but it's primarily because he humbled himself and took the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I, broken sinners, could be made right 
could be not only forgiven, but welcomed into the family. Jesus is not saying to you, earn my favor. He's saying you couldn't earn it, but here, I will give it to you anyway. And maybe you've never repented and turned to him because you've got a a faulty view of God in your mind where God is standing there saying, get your act together and then I'll fix you. Get your act together and then I'll welcome you. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to save you just, just for my name's sake. I will be merciful to you. So Jesus, the greater son of David, he rescues, but he doesn't just rescue, he reigns. He reigns and rescues through this selfless, sacrificial mindset, which is not only the means of our salvation, but it's also a model for us of kingdom living. What, how should we live now that we're in the kingdom? How should we connect ourselves? Too often, this is where we get, we put our faith in Jesus, and then we go right back to me first living. Brothers and sisters, me first living is not kingdom living. This is not the person who's been transformed by faith in Jesus Christ, who now looks around and says to everybody else, you get in the back seat, I'm number one. Right? We cannot live with this hypocrisy where we say, I've trusted in the selfless Savior who gave everything for me, and now I'm going to follow him by doing everything for me also. Do you remember Jesus? I mean, there's so many places, but... In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, after the apostles were in a fist fight over who was going to get the primary spot in the kingdom, and Jesus says, guys, the Son of Man, title for the Messiah, fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How? And to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, guys, you've missed it. The calling to be an apostle is a calling of selfless sacrifice. The calling of a disciple of Jesus for every believer, no matter who you are, is a calling to selfless sacrifice because you have trusted in the one who has shown us what is genuinely good. And me first doesn't cut it. And so the greater son of David He reigns and rescues through selfless sacrifice. This is why Paul in Philippians 2 says, 2 verse 5, think this way. Think the way Jesus thought. In what regard? When he, although he had the the right to say no to all of this, although he was equal with God, he did not consider that something to cling to, but instead he sacrificed. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself and went to the cross. And so when we see that in Jesus, it's not just that, oh, yay, he did that for me. How cool. Now I'm forgiven. I can do whatever I want. It's he's saying also, you should come and now follow me in this lifestyle. I wonder where you need to grow in saying no to the me first initiative in your heart. Where you need to grow in saying yes to selfless sacrifice for others. Now, that word selfless, we have to be careful with it. it it's the, I'm saying it here in the opposite sense of selfishness. So instead of being selfish, you're being selfless, right? But it's kind of a little tricky because at the end of the day, this is better for you. It's better for you to humble yourself and to follow Jesus by faith and serve others. It is better for your soul. So you actually don't lose in this equation. You actually win in this equation. But Pastor Ryan, it's hard. Pastor Ryan, it's going to cost me time and energy, maybe even money. Yep. Pastor Ryan, nobody else is doing it. Yep. Yep. It's true. And where Hezekiah failed, Jesus didn't. And Jesus says, this is the way we live in my kingdom. 
This is the way we love in my kingdom. And so by faith in Jesus, we repent of the me-first mindset, and we trust God with our well-being. You're in good hands, by the way, there, right? We trust God with our well-being. We surrender that right to make it all about me all the time, and now we're free to serve. Husbands, you are freed to sacrificially serve your wives, to put them first. This is, a, this is the calling of the Christian husband. How are you doing in that? Wives, you are, you are free to, to submit to your husbands, to value them in your relationship, and to give up that, what, the, what our culture says, you deserve the right of leadership, and you can give that up, and it's okay, because God will provide. Fathers, you can serve by investing spiritually in your children and taking whatever time it takes to do that. You, you can do that, and you're called to do that. Mothers, as you no doubt are called to sacrifice so much, many of you working part-time and dealing with laundry and shuttling kids to and fro, but mothers, you need to know that all that sacrifice, that it is, when it's driven by faith, it is an example of that Christ-likeness. And you, you have the freedom to not be bitter over it, and to not keep score about how much sacrifice you have made versus how much others have made, but you have the freedom to just serve and to love and just, and just to trust God with the results in that. Students, you are freed in Christ to love others and to respond differently to the harsh teacher at school or to respond differently to the unpopular kid in the cafeteria or whatever it is that you're facing, right? You have, you have the freedom to love and to serve and to sacrifice because Jesus has paid it all for you. And you're part of his kingdom now. Employers, you can treat your employees differently in a distinctly Christian way with genuine care for their souls because of the greater son of David and what, he, what he's done for us. He reigns and rescues through selfless sacrifice. Employers, you, you, can, you can reign in your little kingdom with selfless sacrifice. And employees, in the same way, you can treat your employer as though you are working directly for Jesus Right? You can do that, and you might lose some time. You might lose something in that exchange. It might seem like, but in the end, again, because Jesus reigns and rescues through selfless sacrifice, we can do that. By faith again in Jesus, again, by faith in Jesus, we repent of that me-first mindset. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm in your hands. Most likely, you won't be called to a spectacular show of sacrificial service. And every once in a while, we might use an example, some like epic moment, you know, where someone made this huge sacrifice and it was noteworthy. It was, you know, whatever and all that. And I was like, wow, look at what they sacrificed. Listen, brothers and sisters, 99.9% of the time, that's not going to be us. You know what God calls us to 100% of the time? Daily moments of seemingly small sacrifice. It's the little stuff. It's the small ball. This is where God calls us to say no to me first, and they say yes to sacrificially loving others. Not because it glorifies us, but because we've put our faith in him. So I, I don't know what it's going to be for you. You just might think through the challenge. Think about it categorically, wherever you are in your situation in life. But just you need to know this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called not to me first, but you are called to follow the greater son of David. And not to say, eh, it's no big deal, not my problem. 
but instead to say, you know what, I'm going to actually care about those people. And we all can't care for everybody, fair enough. That's why God saved so many of us, <laughs> right? It's so that we can reflect his care and love for the world. So we don't have to all love everybody. We couldn't do that. But you know what? Whoever God puts in your life, those are the ones he's called you to care for. So let's go. Let's be people who, who don't buy into this lie that you really should live the me first life and it's the best way for you to get what you want. Where Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. The greater son of David reigns and rescues through selfless sacrifice. He saved us from our selfishness so that we can now live in sacrificial love to others. Let's do that by faith in him. Would you pray to that end with me right now? Lord, again, we pause this morning here in light of just going through this narrative about Hezekiah. And we confess there's some of the details here, Lord, we don't know that we wish we knew more about. But at the end of the day, we see very clearly the struggle that Hezekiah had with self-focus. And we see this as a warning to us, Lord, of our own selfishness. Lord, protect us from believing the lie that to live with this me-first mindset is best for us. Lord, I ask that you would graciously, by your Spirit, convict us of our sin. That we would not feel right about what is not right in us. That, that we would struggle And Lord, help us to courageously identify these are the areas where I am struggling with selfishness. Lord, we also pray, though, that we would would see clearly your character as it's on display in this chapter, that you are a gracious and merciful God who does heal, who does act in history. And Lord, we thank you that by virtue of your work on our behalf, we are forgiven of our sins because, Lord Jesus, you were willing to selflessly sacrifice yourself for us. Lord, protect us from thinking we have to earn your favor. Help us to be blown away by the fact that we've already received your favor. We never earned it. But now, Lord, also help us to respond in faith as you call us to live what is, in many ways, a costly life of spending time and energy loving others. Protect us from cold-hearted lack of compassion. Lord, and transform us so that you can be glorified in this community as we shockingly love others because you have so loved us. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you reign and rescue through your selfless love. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow your leadership in living that kind of life. We can't do it without your spirit, so we ask now for his help. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.